Welcome to the Simple Church Podcast. We'd like to thank you for taking a few moments out of your day to listen to what God is doing here in Reynoldsburg, Ohio. We hope today's message will be encouraging and uplifting to you. To learn more about Simple Church, maybe you'd like to be our guest for a service, please visit our website at www.simplechurchohio.com. There you'll find more information about us, location, service times, and even online giving opportunities. And now, here's today's message. So let's just jump into what we're in. We're here for today. We are going to be taking a look in the Bible at uh, four different married couples from the Old Testament, and we're going to be telling stories from there, which is why we've kind of got this little living room set up all, all done here, and I'm all comfy, and we're, we're going to look at these marriages from the Bible to see what we can learn from those different marriages, because for better or worse, they, they have very valid experiences that we can glean from so that we can become better, right? And so that's what we're going to do. Now, let me do this. Let me do just a quick poll. Ladies, how many ladies are here? Where are the ladies at? Yeah, all right. Ladies, how many of you have been dreaming, like, since you were 16 years old of, like, the perfect marriage? You know what I'm saying? Like, like you've been dreaming, like, everything would go this way. You would look this way in your dress. And when you got married, your home would look this way. How many of you have been dreaming about your marriage since having the perfect marriage since you were about 16 years old? Let me see some hands. All right, ladies. All right, all right. Where's all the fellas at? Guys out there? That's just a woo. Make a note to, uh, like, give coffee to everybody, whether they want it or not, all right? <laughs> so, so, guys, how many of you, be honest, how many of you have been dreaming about your marriage since you were 16 and being, the, the dream was to have intimacy with your spouse twice a day during the week and three times a day on the weekend? Ah, there's a few of you, huh? All right. Some of you guys wanted to be honest. All right, now let me ask you, all of you, how many of you guys are still dreaming that you would have the perfect marriage or have what you've been dreaming of since you were a kid, right? Yeah. The, 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 the reality is, is it's, it's just not, that, that's just not how marriage goes, right? And, uh, and so I think when it comes to romantic love and romance in general, uh, we're really confused, aren't we? We're, we've got a very warped sense of what love is. And, and really, I mean, it's what we have to blame in our lives is the stories that we've read, the books that we've read, the movies that we've watched, the songs that we listen to that are all about love and everything is so perfect all the time, right? You know, you, you believe as a young lady that someday a guy is going to burst onto the scene and he's going to be riding a white horse and he's going to be, you're the fairest maid I've ever met, you were made. Oh. It's not true. It's not going to happen. And you think that this guy's going to come on the scene and you're going to live happily ever after, and then reality hits and there is no happily ever after. Our expectations have left us wanting, haven't they? We, we've dreamed that it would all be perfect. We think we're going to have the perfect house, perfect dogs, the 2.5 kids, and, and just have this beautiful happily ever after ending. And and, and it just never comes in so many marriages. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at a very uh, unusual marriage from the Old Testament. It's actually uh, the story uh, with with a couple weird twists in it. And it's a a couple, actually it's it's not a couple, it's a a love triangle. You all know what a love triangle is, right? It involves three people. And uh, this is the story of Jacob and Rachel 
Um, and basically what happens is, is Jacob sees Rachel, falls in love, has to have her, and then, his, then Rachel's sister Leah kind of gets involved somehow, and they do not have a happily ever after situation. So let me give you a little bit of context and tell you what the story is all about. Uh, Jacob of Jacob and Esau, you guys know this story from the Old Testament. Jacob of Jacob and Esau, he's running from his brother right now. He's running for his life from his home country because he tricked his dad into giving, he lied to his dad and tricked his dad, his blind, dying father, into giving him the inheritance that was due his older brother Esau, his twin older brother Esau, all right? And so he's running for his life to his uncle's house. And when he gets to his uncle Laban's house, he stops at a well. And he looks out, and who does he see but Rachel? And man, Rachel is fine. He's like, dang, girl got it going on. She is fine. And he's like, I'm in love, and I got to have her. And then he finds out that it's his uncle's daughter. Now, if you're doing the math, (laughs) Jacob's uncle's daughter, he's got the hots for. That makes Rachel his, yeah, his cousin, right? Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? You find somebody and you see them, they're really, really hot, and you're like, oh, they're my cousin, but it doesn't matter, they're hot, I'm going for it. You know what I'm talking about, right? Don't raise your hand to that. That was a trick question. Get out. I'm just kidding. For the recording, nobody raised their hands. If you're listening to the podcast, nobody did. They're all like, did somebody really raise their hand to that? No. But he says, if I can just marry her then finally my life will have meaning. Because you need to understand, though the Bible does not say those words specifically, Jacob was a real person. Jacob was motivated by something. There was something that drove him. And so if we try to understand Jacob's situation, we can kind of extrapolate. We can, we can make some assumptions about him. First of all, let me tell you that Jacob is somebody who lived his life without the love of his father. And many of you know this experience, that when you don't receive the love of your father, it leaves you longing for more. It leaves you longing for something. There's something missing from your life. And then Jacob is now running from his hometown where his mother is, so he's lost the love and affection of the one parent who was pouring into him. And it's not like he could FaceTime her. It's not like he could call her or text her or check on her. I mean, we're talking months apart. And he's lost that direct connection with her. And then because of who Jacob was, we have no evidence that he understood God's role in his life as a loving father. So he didn't understand God's love. And so we can draw some conclusions from this situation that Jacob was looking for love because he felt something was missing. This is why he sees Rachel and declares he's in love, wants to marry her. And so I, I don't know, he, Jacob thinks this has got to be my one. And if I marry her, then maybe I won't feel this emptiness inside. I think some of us understand that. I mean, think about the girl who feels empty in her life without a boyfriend. She feels like she has no meaning. She has no social status. And so she'll run out and find the next guy. Or it doesn't matter if he's good for her or not. Or what about the girl who, or the guy who has to have the hot girl in his life all the time? In other words, for him to have status with the guys He's, he can only be with a girl that is hot. What about the middle-aged guy who has a faithful wife, has kids, but, you know, he's getting a little older and maybe he's growing a little bit of a gut and now, now he's, he's trading in his wife for a younger model 
like a trophy. He's, he's leaving so that he can feel power and feel wanted because he feels like he's missing something and he's trading in what he has because of that emptiness inside. And it's very likely these are the kind of thoughts that's going on in Jacob's mind. This is what he is struggling with. And so our story of, of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel picks up in Genesis chapter 29, verse 16. It says this. It says, now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Now, can I be frank with you for a moment? This comparison of Leah and Rachel, when you read that Leah had weak eyes, you kind of think that maybe she had like a vision problem, right? But really, scholars say, well, hang on, don't do those yet. Hold on. Go back. Go back to the verse. Go back to one more. When it says that Leah had weak eyes, it, it, it's possible that she had a vision issue, but it is more likely because of the way the Bible wrote this. It said Leah had weak eyes, and then they compared them to Rachel's beauty and her form. It is likely that the authors were being very nice, saying that she had weak eyes. In other words, that she was not easy on the eyes, that Leah was not very attractive. And so they make that comparison, and we can kind of draw that conclusion that Leah was not an attractive girl. And she may have had some kind of deformity in her eyes that made her look like this. There you go. Now you can bring it up. It's some kind of, you know, some, some kind of vision issue she may have. When you study out the, the original Hebrew, because that's what the Old Testament is written in, it it's, kind of describes this. Maybe she had some difficulty with seeing or just wasn't attractive. But when you study out the Hebrew on Rachel, it describes her as being beautiful and lovely in form. And when you understand the details and how it's describing, well, this is what I believe Rachel looked like. Yeah, that's my wife right there. Oh, and I'm aware that I just scored a lot of brownie points, which I will cash in as soon as humanly possible. Sometimes I'm too much. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not undervaluing the importance of physical attraction, okay? I think it's really, really important, but I think we live in a society that stresses too much on it. And an over-sexualized, highly sexually driven society, everything is about the outward appearance. It's how you look externally. It's about the bank account that you have. It's about the car that you drive. It's the career that you have. Every bit of focus that we have is on the external, and it gets elevated. And I'm telling you, this is just flat wrong. In fact, when we look at our story, we find that it was not Rachel, the beautiful and lovely in form, that was the superior of the two sisters. It was Leah who, was, who had weak eyes. That was the, the superior of the two. But too often, we look outwardly. And so in our story, Jacob, all he knew about Rachel was that she was hot. He's at the well, he sees her, she's hot, and he's, after spending one month there with Laban, he says, hey, listen, I gotta have her. I, I wanna marry her, I, I'm in love with her. Now, what we know culturally about this time is that Jacob would not have been allowed to spend a whole lot of time with Rachel. So there's no way possible that he knew what kind of a person she was and fell in love with her heart. No, he fell in love with what he saw. He was in love and had to have it. And I think this happens all the time. 
I talk to people regularly. They come up to me so excited about the person that they've started dating. They're like, oh, you're never going to, he's so strong and his, he's got these Caribbean blue eyes and he's so handsome and he's got a nice car and he's got a good career. And you listen to all the things that they're excited about in their boyfriend or girlfriend, but I always bring it back to this. So you're a Christ follower? Oh yeah, definitely, absolutely. So what's his salvation story? What's her Jesus story? And when they respond, well, there's not really one there. Like, you know, they don't like to talk about spiritual things. That's not really where they're at in life right now. You know, church was crammed down their throats. But I'm hoping, I'm hoping that, you know, if we date, I can get them to come to church with me. And I just look at them and go, is that really the foundation of a relationship you want to have? As a Christ follower, you want to be partnered with somebody who is not? What is going to happen when you get married and you make a vow and commit to till death do us part for better or for worse? Because I got news for you. It's great in the beginning, but that worse comes. And you're like, my God, pastor, be positive. I am positive. Positive that worse is going to come. And what are you going to do? Are you going to bat them blue eyes at the problem that you're facing, at the financial crisis you're facing, the health crisis that you are facing? Or is that person that is joined to you going to be able to join you and grab hands and pray? What kind of a foundation do you want to lay? What will you do when things get worse? And so many do this. They build a a relationship, that foundation, on external things only. On the statistics. On, hey, this is the person I'm likely going to have a good life with. They like the things that I like. We're both nerds or we're both athletic or this or that. And you miss some of the most important things and it happens all the time. And so Jacob says, if I can just marry this one, then my life will finally matter. And this premise that marriage is the answer to why you're feeling empty inside, this, this answer that, that, that this is why you aren't achieving what God wants you to have today, this is problematic. When you believe that marriage is the answer to your unfulfillment, it, it creates three problems, actually. The first problem that it creates is that you compromise more than you should. You compromise more than you should. You give up things that are important to you that you hold near and dear to your heart in pursuit of that one person. Genesis 29, 18, this is continuing the story. It says, Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for, your, for you seven years. He's talking to Laban, her uncle, or her dad, his uncle. I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, what, what is happening here? Jacob is going all in. He's pushing all his chips on the table, and he's like, she's the one I've got to have. I want her. And he's offering to work for her. Now, don't let this offend you because culturally at the time, if you wanted to marry a man's daughter, you paid him what's called a dowry. You either gave him some cash or you gave him some cattle or you worked for them. And that's what Jacob is opting to do. Remember, he's fled his home with nothing. And he's here offering to work seven years. But not just that. He's offering to work almost four times the amount that would normally be offered to marry a woman. Almost four times more. Now, normally you would start out low and kind of work up as the father wanted you to. But he's so excited about Rachel. He's compromised. He's giving way more. He's like, I've got to have her 
I'll give seven years so that I can marry her. And if you read between the lines, what Jacob is saying is, I'll do anything for her. I'll do more than is needed for her. We see this in our lives. The girl who's saving her body for marriage, but she meets the guy that she thinks is the one. He's pressuring her sexually, and she thinks, well, if I give her my body, then maybe he'll love me. Maybe he'll marry me. And he'll give me his heart. Well, the girl who's in a relationship with a guy who doesn't treat you well, and you think, you know, maybe if we get married and I'm able to spend more time with him, that I can change him. And, and, and maybe, maybe things will be better when we compromise. Or maybe you're the guy who just wants to impress the girl. And so you spend all of your money on her, taking her to, on dates, which that's great, but you're spending it all buying her things just to impress her. And you wind up going into debt and having nothing left for it. It's compromise. It says, I'll do anything to have the person who will make me feel valuable. When marriage is your answer, you compromise more than you should. The second thing that it causes you to do when marriage is your answer is it causes you to become more demanding. It causes you to become demanding. This is exactly what Jacob did. He works for Laban for seven years to get Rachel. And then he comes to Laban, and this is what he says, verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. What? 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 Look at this for a second. He's saying, I did my part. Now she needs to get over here and do her part. Do you hear what he's saying? What he's saying is shallow. It's not polite. It's not honoring. It's not loving in any way. In fact, it's downright disrespectful and dishonorable to the father and to the daughter to treat her like a piece of meat instead of like an individual. Basically, he's treating this like a contract instead of how marriage should be treated, which is like a covenant. It's a covenant relationship where you lay down your lives for each other. You serve each other. You give of yourselves to each other. You don't demand your rights from each other. You surrender and yield to each other. And Jacob is not treating her like that. And it's so common today. Sometimes marriages start out on that covenant relationship, and eventually their relationship just erodes to a contract where I've done this, now you need to do this, right? You owe me because of what happens. And when this happens, your expectations begin to rise for the other person. And when that happens, you become very dissatisfied because your spouse will never, ever live up to those expectations, when it's a contractual relationship. It just won't happen. When you look at, at marriages, sex is, a, is quite commonly used in this way. The guy says, well, I went to work. I bring home the bacon, so it's your job to put out. Or the wife uses sex as a bargaining chip. Well, if you don't do this, then I won't do that. We use it against each other. We use it as a contract and not as a mutual surrendering of our bodies to each other. There's other ways that we do it. Ladies, I'm just going to be honest. Sometimes you have uncommunicated expectations. This can be very demanding on us because as guys, we don't know what those are. And even if you told us them and you spoke slowly, we still might not understand them because we're men. Okay? But I'm just saying, that can, be, that can seem very demanding to us. Or guys, you come home from work and you look at your wife who, who's maybe a stay-at-home mom 
And you say, what'd you do all day long? How come you couldn't get this done? You don't work. Feed me. When's dinner? You grumble at her. You complain at her. Clean up after me. Draw my bath water. Rub my feet. Now, I know this is what you're like, what is this, a marriage from the 40s? Like what? (laughs) But seriously, we become very demanding of each other. Cook for me. Shop for me. Have the house cleaned up. We, we become very demanding in the way. Shanda, at home, sometimes she is so demanding of me. She can't keep her hands off of me, constantly trying to take me upstairs. I'm like, babe, seriously, <laughs> it is the weekend. I just really want you to sit on the couch and cuddle with me. Could you please just hold me? <laughs> that's not true. That's not, that's not true. That's not true at all. Yeah, yeah wake up. <laughs> But it's so easy for us, even in, even in good marriages, to say, I did my part, now you have to do your part, isn't it? It's so easy to lapse. When marriage is your answer to this unfulfillment in your life, you'll compromise more than you should, and you'll become even more demanding. The third problem that marriage being the answer causes in our life is that we're always, we always end up dissatisfied. We always end up dissatisfying because some enter marriage with such high expectations that nobody could ever fulfill them. And let me tell you something. When you do this, you are setting yourself, you are setting your spouse, and ultimately your marriage up for failure. When you come in with such high expectations, you'll, you'll always end up dissatisfied. And, th- and that's what happens in this story. That, that's what happens in the story with Jacob because Jacob works seven years for Rachel, the one that's beautiful and lovely in form. And traditionally and culturally, it, it was typical for the oldest to get married first. Now remember, Leah's got weak eyes, or she's not really pretty. And so after these seven years, nobody's snatched her up. So it comes time for the wedding. Jacob's ready. So as the marriage feast is going on, there's likely alcohol that is flowing freely. And Jacob's celebrating, maybe a little tipsy, maybe a little more than he should be. And Laban comes up with a plan, his uncle, and says, I need to get Leah married. So he pulls Leah into a room and says, look, here's the plan. I'm going to put a veil on you. It's a really heavy one so that he can't see. He's kind of tipsy anyway. He's not going to care. He's been working seven years. He's ready. And we're going to go through the ceremony. You're going to marry him. And during this time period, you would figure, why didn't he just lift the veil to kiss his bride? And that's not how that happened. They would have gone straight to the marriage room, from the altar to the bedroom, and they would have sealed the deal, so to speak, literally. Because the, the, uh, they, they would have had intercourse, and because she would have been a virgin, there would have been some shedding of blood, and the blood on the sheets would have been kept as a token that the contract or the deal between the father and the man who purchased the bride, that, that he was giving her as a virgin to him, And so this would have been kept. This is how it happened. They would go straight from the altar to the bedroom and and seal the deal. And so Jacob goes to the altar, and it's Leah. And she's got the veil on, and and the Bible says this is what happened. But when evening came, Laban took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob did what he was supposed to do. Jacob lay with her. When morning came, there was Leah. Now, when you read your Bible, you need to pay attention to things. That's an exclamation point. That's not a, when the morning came, there was Leah. 
It was when the morning came, there was Leah. Oh my gosh. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about, right? You thought you were like, you went to bed with Rachel, but you wake up in the morning and you find Leah. You know what I'm saying? So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And bottom line, this will happen every time that you think marriage is the answer to your unfulfillment in life. When you think that someone else can meet all of your needs, you'll think you've gone to bed with Rachel, but you'll wake up with Leah. Because no one person can meet all the needs that you have in your life. Now, let's put a pause on, on Jacob for a second. Consider Leah in this story. How low is her self-esteem to do this in the first place? What does she feel like she's missing in her life? How much longing does she have? She probably realizes that she's the one that everybody is politely saying has weak eyes. She realizes that she was not the chosen one, and yet she's chosen to enter into a marriage covenant through deception. And you have to wonder, if Leah doesn't do this thinking, well, I know that he doesn't care for me, but maybe in time he'll come to love me. In fact, as we read the story, we know that's exactly what Leah thought. If he gets to know me, if I do this for him, then, then maybe he'll love me. And her story is so many people's story. We try so to do so many things to make someone love us to fulfill their needs and their expectations in order for them to then reciprocate and love us back. If I do this, maybe they'll love me. And this is, this is just the saddest part of the story when you consider Leah. Now, there's, there's some other things that happen in the story, and for time, I'm going to kind of skip it, but ultimately, Jacob now agrees to work an additional seven years for Rachel. So now he's putting in 14 years in order to get Rachel. And that means he's husband to Leah for seven years before Rachel enters into the picture. And so this kind of flashes forward ahead in time to verse 31. And it says, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. In other words, Leah could have babies and Rachel couldn't. That was a big deal during that time. And Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Reuben. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. How sad for Leah. She felt like he was the answer to her joy. It's heartbreaking. Surely he will love me now. If I give him babies, he'll love me. If I have more money, she'll love me. If I have the surgery to change how I look, she'll love me. If I lose the weight, he'll be interested in me. If I have this type of lifestyle, he'll love me. Surely, he'll love me. Surely, she'll love me more. But if you look at this story, have you noticed what's missing? What seems to be absent from this story, from Jacob's life, from Leah's life? The answer is this. There's no evidence of prayer. There's no evidence of seeking God's face about any of this. There's no evidence of faith or spiritual connection. There's nothing there. All we can see is 
them treating each other this way. It's all about the what I want to get out of you. It is them searching for the one. The one person that would satisfy them. The one person that would make them feel loved. The problem was they were searching for the wrong one. See, we've been taught and conditioned to believe this true statement. It's a true statement. You ready for it? Here's the true statement. To be really fulfilled in life, you have to find the one. That's a true statement. That is absolutely the tr- a true statement. But when we hear that, we interpret that to mean that we need to find Mr. or Mrs. Right. We label a person in our life the one. If we can find the one person, then we'll be happy. Maybe she's the one, we think. We start dating her. Maybe he's the one. He loves me. He treats me really kind. He's nice. But the better thing to say, especially if you're a Christ follower, is that maybe he or she is the two. Maybe he or she is the two because to be fulfilled in life, you have to meet the one, but you need to know that God is your one and your spouse is your two. If you want to be fulfilled in life, you need to find your one, but God is your one and your spouse is your two. In the Bible, Jesus said, love God first. He said, love God and then love others. That's the order. That's the way it goes. If you have that reversed or the first part absent altogether, you will spend this life empty, seeking fulfillment in relationship after relationship, maybe even marriage after marriage, when God is not the one that you love first. The Bible says, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. You want to have a fulfilling relationship, it starts here with the one, and then you can find your two. God has to be first if you want the kind of marriage that God promises you. I don't know if you know my story or not, and I've, I've told it many, many times here, but you know the way that I found Shanda was I wasn't looking for Shanda. Many of you know that I, I was married years ago, and that marriage fell apart within a year. We were young, immature, selfish. We made bad decisions, and that marriage fell apart, and I was divorced. And in my return to walking with God, following Jesus, I dated girls, and none of it seemed to be working out because I was pursuing them more than I was pursuing God. And so I made a shift in my heart. I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to pursue the one. I'm going to pursue God. And if he brings me somebody, he brings me somebody. And so I got connected to a local church. I started serving in their children's ministry. And it wasn't until then that many months later, somebody came up to me and they found out I was single and they said, you've got to meet somebody. And I'm not going to tell you what they said. That's a private conversation that I'll share with you, not up here on stage where it's being recorded. But they described Shanda being lovely in form, and they were correct. And they said, you got to meet her. And little did I know that Shanda was on that same journey, because back home in Kentucky where she lived, she said, I'm not doing this anymore. She wrote down a list of everything she wanted in a man, wrote it on a prayer list, put it in a, put it in a prayer box during a prayer meeting, and said, God, I'm going to seek you I'm going to trust you to bring me this guy. 
See, when you're seeking after the one, you'll find your two. You'll find your two. And it will be a, an incredible blessing. It's different. It's different than finding your one in a person. When you find your one in God, finding that too is, is, is powerful. And there's a reason so many of you feel like you have to do something to gain love and are so dissatisfied in your marriages. There's a reason. It's because God is not your one. Your focus is on each other. You've made each other your one. I think you can be a Christian or call yourself a Christian and come to church without Jesus being Lord of your life, without God being your number one. If we move on to the end of the story, Leah has three sons with Jacob. And each time she has a son, maybe he'll love me now. Maybe he'll care for me now. But Leah has her fourth son. And something has shifted in Leah. And I think you'll be able to pick it out right away. It says in verse 35, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. Something very different than she said before. This time I will praise the Lord. What has happened? Her focus is no longer on Jacob. She didn't say this time I'll praise the Lord because Jacob loves me. That's not what she said. Her focus became him. And it says, so she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Now why is that important? Why is the fact that she had a child and named him Judah important? Let me give you a little history lesson. You're ready for it? Jacob later has his name changed as he wrestles with God. And do you know what his name becomes? Israel. Making sense? The Jewish people come from that, from, from Israel, the nation of Israel. Israel has 12 sons. Guess how many tribes there are in Israel? There's 12. Judah's one of Israel's sons. That's the tribe of Judah. And if you follow the tribe of Judah centuries down the road, do you know who's born of the line of the tribe of Judah? He is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's Jesus. Once again, in typical God fashion, he takes something that started out broken and produces something so beautiful from it. It's amazing what God does. So let me tell you something today. If your marriage didn't start right, or if right now your marriage is in a difficult spot, be encouraged. Because if you'll make God your focus and make him your one, when two are seeking one together, that your mess can turn into a miracle. Your mess can turn into a miracle and anything is possible. And so you say, Aaron, where do I start? All right, here's how you start. If your marriage is struggling, here's how you start. Grab hands with your spouse. Maybe you want to do it now. Grab hands with them and pray. You say, oh, no, Aaron, we don't do that praying thing. I've never prayed out loud, let alone together with my spouse. 
well, can I say something to you? If you want something you've never had, it's time to do something you've never done. Hello? Grab hands with your spouse and pray. What do we say? Simple. God, teach us to make you one, to make you our one together so that we can pursue you together. And I promise as you will sit back and pray that prayer together that God will make a massive difference in your life. He will make a miracle out of your mess. You'll be amazed at what happens when God becomes your one and your spouse becomes your two. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these married couples that you have put in the Bible for us to learn from. I thank you for the story of Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. I thank you for the challenges, what, what becomes very clear to us as we read your word about how we're living and how much we're missing and how we can correct that by simply making you our one. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and, and help us to do this. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I wonder how many of you would say here today, and, and, and saying this is not saying that your marriage is in trouble, but how many of you would, would like to have a more godly marriage? Would you just lift your hand up and say, that's me? I, I want to have a more godly marriage. Or maybe you're going to get married, or maybe you want to be married, and that's what you want your marriage to look like. Would you say, that's me, I want that? Father, I pray that as we pursue you first, that you would help us to make you the one in our lives that you would help us to serve you better, that you would give us hope for better. Lord, that our marriages would be more than a contract, that they would be a covenant relationship where we serve and love one another. Lord, that we wouldn't just do it for the kids and keep up appearances for the church. Lord, that we would pursue you with all of our hearts and make you first in our lives together. And I pray, God, that a healing process would begin today. Lord, for those of us that are in broken marriages today, where we've set high expectations on each other, we've sought for the answers, we've sought for the fulfillment in each other. May we seek you for those things. May we shed compromise. May we shed the demands. today, God, to love you more. And ultimately, I pray that we, on the other side of this, that we would share stories of the miracles you've done in our marriages. As we continue to pray, there may be some of you here today that you have been empty. You have sought relationship after relationship, maybe even marriage after marriage, to fill that hole in your heart and your life. Can I just say to you that what you're looking to fill that hole with will never work? Even if it's not relationships that you're looking to fill it with, you look to fill it with substance, you look to fill it with material things, with money, extreme vacations and trips, experiences. You look to fill that void with everything you can in the world around you. But that void, that hole in your heart and life is a God-shaped hole. And that means that nothing in this world that you try to fill it with will work. 
except for him. We were made for fellowship with him. But our sin, doing things our way, separates us from God because he is holy, he is pure. And so being separated from him, there needed to be a way for us to get back to him. But everything that you and I can do to get back to God, to pay for the penalty of our sins is no good. No amount of good works, no amount of serving in a food pantry or giving all of our money away to charity will ever change our eternal destinations or our standing with God. No, God had to get involved and he had to send his only son, Jesus, to pay that price for us, to bridge that gap between us and God so that that hole in our hearts could be filled. Jesus came to this earth. He lived a perfect and sinless life, and he surrendered his life. Being fully God and fully man, he laid down his life and died upon the cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead, and he did all of this because he was the only one who could. A perfect sacrifice. And when he did that, when he shed his blood, that blood gave us permission to be forgiven gave us the opportunity to be inducted or adopted into a spiritual family. And if you're here today and you feel empty with everything that you've tried to do in the past, that is what you are missing, is Jesus. And so today, if you want to take an opportunity, the Bible says that all you have to do is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. This is a free gift he's offering to you. You can spend eternity in hell paying for your sins or you can just let Jesus pay for them and accept that free gift and have a life that is full and fulfilled and transformed and eternity in heaven with our Father. So today, if you want to be included in on the prayer that I'm about to pray, if you want to say yes to heaven and no to hell, yes to Jesus and no to the devil, if you want to say yes to salvation, yes to a new life, yes to a fulfilled life, and no to everything else you've been trying to fill your life with, I'm going to pray that prayer. If you want to be counted in on that prayer, would you just shoot your hand up and say, that's me, Aaron, do that now. Do that now. Just, just, just slip your hand in the air. Yeah. That's great. Be brave. There's nobody that's going to make fun of you. We're going to celebrate with you. Yeah, thank you. Put your hands down. Church, can we pray together so that nobody has to pray alone? Pray these words out loud. Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you came to this earth. You lived a perfect and sinless life. you gave your life on the cross and rose from the dead three days later. You did this to show me you love me. Right now I give you my life. Would you give me yours? Show me how to live for you and I'll spend every day doing that. Help me make you the one, Jesus. Amen.